Seeking something new? Sunseeker Resort Charlotte Harbor is an unforgettable retreat where relaxation comes effortlessly. Escape to alluring accommodations, savor an incredible waterfront dining, and enjoy an array of activities, including championship-level golf and poolside pampering from 127 feet up. Consider this your permission to indulge and book your Florida Gulf Coast escape now. Visit sunseekerresorts.com. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrath on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. Hendel Remus is chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party. In 2021, he became the first black person ever to hold that job and Look, his passion for community, his commitment to democratic values, his tireless get the job done work ethic puts him in that cohort of new democratic leaders who are remaking the party the way it works on the ground and in communities across America. Uh, Chairman Rimmins, welcome. Thank you, Edwin. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for giving Tennessee a voice. Uh, I love talking about Tennessee. And boy, are you important. <laughs> Um, look, I talk with a lot of party chairs on this show, and here in the upper Midwest, we now have awesome leadership in Lavora Barnes in Michigan, and Ben Wickler in Wisconsin, Ken Martin in Minnesota. They have winning formulas, and they've unleashed tremendous energies that are, you know, moving this part of the country forward again. But um, I, I think we have competition I'm in Arizona, in Nevada, in North Carolina, and what you're doing in Tennessee. This is really interesting stuff. Yeah, I, I think, and, and all of those are, are great uh, examples and role models for for state party chairs who are looking uh, looking to stay hopeful and open minded about what the future can hold. Uh, they, those have been great uh, state party chair examples for all of us, uh, and that energy. That, that, that they have in states that were able to reclaim the presidency in 2020 and, and serve some big major victories uh, in 2022 and, and, and even uh, this year uh, has been a, a sign of hope for all of us here in Tennessee. But we have an opportunity. I think right now our state is, is under a glaring national spotlight uh, and people have been able to see what the power of being engaged and being involved and uh, being mobilized could really bring about. Uh, and I think that's going to produce some really from us as we uh, as we plow ahead. So, uh, you know, we have a little bit of luxury on this show that you and I have some time together, and I want to dig into all of that. But first, take a you know couple minutes and you know introduce yourself. Tell us about you and how you. What was your journey in, in the world of partisan politics? Well, uh, like so many young folks who had gotten uh, bitten by the Obama bug, I volunteered for uh, President Obama's campaign uh, back in 2008, uh, and I got a chance to meet people knocking on doors and canvassing neighborhoods and making calls and just seeing that people power and the ability for folks to uh, bind together and make their voices heard in a way to make change. I actually decided to run for office myself when I was 25. I ran for a uh, primary and an 18-year Democratic incumbent in a, uh, in a state house seat. I didn't know a thing about local party politics. I really didn't know anything about state party politics. I just knew that I wanted to be a part of change. So I got involved and got engaged. And, uh, and uh, to, to borrow some 
some words from President Obama. I got shellacked, um, but uh, I didn't. I didn't let that defeat my hopes and my aspirations of wanting to bring about change uh, in Tennessee and in my community. Uh, they continued working and being engaged and involved in, in the local party. Learned a lot more. Uh, became became a mentee to some uh, Democratic elected officials who had been around for a while, um, and just stayed ingrained and involved. Learned how to do gra- some took some courses. Learned graphic design. Learned some robo robo uh, call uh, robo call bought some robo call software. Uh, learned how to do some video work and started uh, offering my services up to new candidates as an in kind uh-huh. contribution. And uh, and just stayed involved in the process. We had a vacancy, and then the whole time I'm working on my college. I'm working on my college degree, and uh, and I'm working in the, in the private sector. And we had an, a vacancy came available on our state executive committee, where I was an ex officio member representing uh, the the Tennessee Young Democrats. And you know, I look at that moment, and, and I it was my my passion for politics, and in the sense that that I had worked in the private sector and uh, deployed many of times in organizational structures that kind of made me feel like I was a right fit for the job. And uh, the state executive committee uh, agreed, and I was elected on a very close uh, election. My first term, second time around, was unanimously uh, reelected. But uh, but my life story is, is what continues to push me into politics. I was the fourth of eight kids born to a single mom who never graduated from high school. Uh, a great family atmosphere and environment that kept us close-knitted together. And even though my mom didn't graduate from high school, you know, all of us went off to, uh, to co- graduate from high school and went off to college or joined the military, and, and we've done very well for ourselves. But every time I'm thinking about and engaging with people across our state, I'm thinking about you know, what, what our life could have been if there was more resources, uh, more people connecting folks who in, impoverished and low-income communities uh, to the tools to really not not just a handout to these folks, but the tools to be able to really climb out of those bad situations so that their lives don't become a reflection of bad situations that they may have inherited. So that drives me every single day. I have a younger brother who who uh, who is who is transgender and. Uh, did what none of my brothers and uh, and cousins did, joined the military, fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, became a police officer, was discriminated against uh, because he he couldn't be true because he wanted to be true to who he was and he couldn't do that in in uniform. So all of these things every single day drives me. I have two young children. My wife is biracial. Uh, she was adopted by by a, a couple that was made up of a Native American and a Caucasian man. And watching my two young children navigate a very black side of uh, of our family, which is which is my family, and then being able to navigate uh, the diversity of my wife's side of the family, watching them be able to do that without hatred and division in their hearts, it just gives me that refreshing reminder that we are a nation that can't overcome so much if we work through some of the differences that we have, but we've got got to be willing to have those hard conversations and we've got to be willing to stand up for those values that we believe in. So that that's what drives me every single day in this role and just as a citizen of our society. 
Well, I am uh, so lucky I asked that question because, wow, <laughs> what a great story. What a great, great story. And I, I, and, I, am, um, not, I, I am not the heir of a political dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what? And it also sounds like, I mean, not only your 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 personal story is so amazing, but the experience you had, I mean, I got this feeling when I was little, but it sounds like you had the same one. When you start going out and you think you're doing politics because of one issue or another, but then you just start talking to your neighbors and they help get them involved. And suddenly you're in a process of building a stronger community just by virtue of helping people find ways to get involved in their own communities and their own neighborhoods and making them better. It's a, it's a, that, that's a great feeling. Yeah, I, I, and I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And to, and to realize in that process that there, that, that we have so much in common than we do that divides us. Uh, when I first had an opportunity to travel to rural, very rare parts of our states, uh, the, uh, the, the commonalities that so many people face, single moms in places like Memphis and Nashville, some of our big cities, had some of the same struggles as single moms in some of our rural, smaller counties. They, they got, they got uh, you know, social benefits uh, from the same place, uh, family assistance benefits from the same state government. We all depend on the same state government to get it right. And when they fail, then they don't just impact folks in the cities and counties that they don't represent, but they impact people all across the state. Yeah. So what does organizing look like in Tennessee? Is it, you know, a lot of coalition building amongst existing organizations or are you creating, you know, whole new on ramps for people to get involved? I think I think nowadays it has been a more concerted effort um, by by a larger coalition of people who are engaged and ingrained and who understand that one of the things that have plagued our state for a long time uh, is the fact that we haven't had a true organized type operation in the state. Everybody's kind of did their own thing. Uh, campaigns have operated in silos. The state parties and county parties have operated in silos. Uh, the state party was not a strong convener of all things Democrat in the state and making sure that people truly know, knew how to get out and knock on doors and to, uh, and, and to canvas communities and engage their uh, communities through community projects. Uh, having all of those elements come together uh, is key to really moving the needle if you're trying to push back against a, a Republican supermajority. And I don't think they existed for a long time because until the 2010 uh, Tea Party rise, Democrats actually controlled the, the state legislature here in Tennessee from Reconstruction up until uh, 2010. And every eight years, the governor's mansion went Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. So Democrats really weren't out on the ground organizing and, and, and moving the needle like they are in a no, no, number of states now and trying to build that apparatus from scratch is one of the things that has held our party back for so long here in the state. And then you couple that with now very precise redistricting, uh, gerrymandering by a Republican supermajority mm-hmm. has made it even, even more difficult. Yeah. We've heard that in other states, too, as you know. Look, what you, what you did recently, I mean, you just had a special election that was truly fabulous. Would you remind everyone listening what was at stake and then how you did it? Well, 
we first we needed to make sure that we reelected uh, two uh, the two tennis two of the Tennessee three Justin Jones and Representative Justin Pearson uh, who were expelled by uh, by this uh, state Republican controlled state legislature um, and uh, every state representative who had opposed them and voted to expel them, uh, doled out money to opponents in their races. And people still, even though they were in districts that were more favorable to the Democratic Party, we still got out and, and turned people out, knocked on doors, made phone calls, sent text messages, because we want people to know and we wanted people to turn out to send a strong message to the Republican supermajority that, what we have in this state is bigger than just uh, the power of politics of one party. Uh, it's about making sure that we're mobilizing people and doing what's right for right for people. So having them win uh, decisively uh, was a huge victory for us. Uh, but also having them out on the ground, keeping the excitement up uh, from what the, the nation had an opportunity to see play out uh, with their expulsion was also an opportunity for us to really begin to uh, build on and build and build on that enthusiasm that I think we're going to need to carry us into 2024. But I know we had that special election. There was another special election that happened in the state on the same day over in a very Republican part of the state uh, that borders North Carolina. Uh, they had a state representative uh, who were who was a member of the Republican uh, leadership in the state house. Uh, who had to resign because of sexual harassment allegations and accusations uh, and a cover-up by the Speaker of the House. Um, in that district where Democrats were only getting uh, about 10 or 15 percent of the vote, we ran a Democrat out there, and we, we gave it all we got. We, we, got, we gave it all we had under the under the the current redistricting and the current maps that that district has. And that candidate was able to increase Democratic participation by 15 percent uh, in that rural red in that rural red area. So being able to see trends like that as we head into 2024 is going to be key and and trying to and trying to gauge what the populace and the voting electorate, uh, what their interest is going to be and how and how and what we need to do to keep them engaged in this process. Well, I heard two great things in that, Mr. Chairman. One, I, f- first, on, on the big win you had uh, reelecting the two men that were thrown out for the audacity of saying after a school shooting, you know what, we ought to do something about guns in this state. Um, uh, that big victory... That whole fiasco and the victory after it um, was enormously motivating and helpful to people all over the country. I hope it helps win elections in Tennessee, but I hope you know how much it mattered what you did for the whole country in, in, um, in, in reminding us that we don't have to be bullied. We don't have to be pushed around by these guys, that we are not going to take that kind of nonsense. And it made a difference. I think it made a difference in Ohio in, the, in this last election they had last week. It just is inspiring to people who've been beaten down a lot. So, again, I hope it mattered. <laughs> See, I know it mattered for the whole country. I want to thank you for that. And the Absolutely. other thing was, you know, um, I love that you're running people everywhere. Run everywhere is so important. And our current sort of Democratic Party, I know it began uh, uh, years ago, um, uh, you know, um, but Jamie Harrison has doubled down on this, I think, correctly. We have to win and we have to show the flag all over the place. Good people living in 
in rural red counties who don't deserve the crummy government they're getting. Absolutely. And in places in Tennessee and, and some of the counties that are the reddest, uh, they have been decimated. Um, you yeah. know, rural hospitals have closed. More people are in poverty. Uh, college, uh, edgy, high school dropout rates are up. Jobs, uh, jobs are down. Uh, uh, opioid and fentanyl uh, overdoses are up. And these are red counties uh, where Republicans have control and, and should have a desire to want to make a difference uh, in the lives of the people who have to go out and reelect them. I think we have to be a reminder to people of, of what's at stake. And we have to get off of, I, I think in my opinion, we have to get off of the defensive and on the offense uh, and letting people know what we stand for and why we stand for it. I think it's time for Republicans uh, to have to defend their record of, of failure in, in communities all across our state and all across our country. Well, um, that brings up a topic, again, we talk a lot about on this show, and that's the difference between governing and politics. And I know you got to yeah. get through the politics in order to govern, but it looks like, you know, I have one party right now, the Democrats are the only ones who are actually focused on not just the problems that, that America faces and trying to deal with them, but also seizing the opportunities that, to move us forward. And I, I see yeah. that happening in 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 state after state and God knows in Washington, um, uh, it's pretty clear that Democrats have made a lot of progress and the GOP is all social wars all the time. How are the people in Tennessee going to see the impacts of things like the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, the infrastructure bill? I mean, they, those didn't get a whole lot of help from your delegation, yeah. <laughs> right? But the yeah. people in the state are going to benefit plenty. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've seen some of the same things happen in Tennessee that has happened around the country. Uh, Republicans who, or a delegation who voted completely against everything that President Biden has been trying to do, but then came back home and tried to claim credit, uh, for, for things like the infrastructure, uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, what we've got to make sure that we do and that we're going to continue to do as a party in our state is take ownership of those things and make sure that people understand and connect the dots with who actually passed those policies and who actually uh, and who actually proposed them and who were, and who was against them. And that's part of an ongoing year round. We talk about organizing people year round. Uh, it's not always about getting them to go out and vote in an election. Sometimes it's making them aware of, of what's happening on the political side. You know, about 10% of the things that actually happen in the state legislature actually gets out because it's the craziest 10% of what's actually happening. Uh, we've made and we're making a, 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 an effort to ensure that people understand all of the dangerous bills and policies that Republicans have put forward and everything that they've uh, stood against. So I think that is a, a very important part of when we talk about organizing. If we're going to train people on how to organize, if there's not elections happening for us, our off year needs to be filled with creating uh, a public awareness so that people can delineate between the political side uh, and the governing side. Yeah. And for us, the what? best effort is not, not what's coming out of the, our state legislature, because we know it's been some of the worst Republican agenda items. But for us, it's about connecting the dots uh, with what Democrats have been able to deliver out of Washington, despite Republican opposition from our state. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, 
there's somebody we don't talk a lot about on this show, so I'd like you to have a chance to tell everybody about her, and that is your senator, uh, Ms. Blackburn. I, I, you know, I think we she could use a bigger audience, so I'd love to get your take on her and the job she's doing, and then uh, let's talk about that election that's coming. Definitely. She has been a, uh, she is definitely a Trump sweetheart. Anything Trumpian she loves. She is, she is what we call uh, a, a, a mega goddess. Um, she has been very divisive in our state. Uh, she, uh, she spews a lot of uh, very untrue things. Uh, a lot of her public statements, a lot of the positions she take are not driven by facts. They're driven by more conspiracy theories. Um, she don't help hold public town halls in the state. Uh, she holds these tele-town halls where people are handpicked to participate in. She has been a very absent senator for the state of Tennessee. Uh, but she, we know that uh, in 2024, when she's up for re-election, she's going to be a formidable opponent to, to whatever Democrat we put up. Uh, but here is a, uh, a, state, a U.S. senator who is out there every day uh, spreading conspiracy theories about fentanyl. Uh, but her entire uh, political career has been funded by a former industry that was responsible for an opioid crisis that led to this fentanyl uh, epidemic that we're in right now. So we're up against someone who I, I think is a very dangerous type of political, uh, elected political person to have in office, not, not just a red state, but even in a blue state, uh, someone who does not have a grasp on what uh, is right or what is needed in a state like Tennessee that is the most federally dependent in the country uh, and who goes out and rails against the government, but is, well, who rails against the federal government and a president who's actually trying to make a difference in the lives of people who are struggling in Tennessee, uh, but every single day uh, turning a blind eye to the fact that if it was not for uh, President Biden and, and the benefit and the support that's coming in from Washington, uh, Tennessee will be in a, a a much harsher condition than it's currently in. So, you know, we had to have a, a very strong and stern conversation about Marsha Blackburn because uh, because she is a she is a very dangerous type of politician who will say and do anything to be reelected or elected and reelected to office. And we're going to face I I, I can imagine. Uh, an onslaught of uh, of a nasty campaign in 2024 that's going to be filled with inaccuracies, hatred, and division, not just for our state, but I think that will spill across the country. Yeah, I think um, Gloria Johnson, the third of the Tennessee three, might be looking at that race. Um, but what is the primary season? What does that look like? I'm, I'm sure it's too early for you as party chair to stand behind one candidate, but what does that look like for you? The, the primary yeah. season? So, 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 so the state party kind of has this neutrality clause <laughs> where, yep. where we, where we kind of stay out of primaries until they're over with. Uh, I know Gloria Johnson has announced her exploratory committee um, uh, uh, for the United States Senate race against Marsha Blackburn. I think she would be a very viable opponent to uh, Marsha Blackburn, but I also think she would do something else 
uh, that that is extremely important for our state and for the nation. I believe that the attention that we've seen uh, and the spotlight, the national spotlight that we've seen shining on Tennessee uh, because of what occurred with the Tennessee Three, I believe that that national spotlight uh, will be less likely to dim with having a candidate like Gloria Johnson uh, against someone as divisive and as uh, and as politically and partisan. Um, I, I don't want to say corrupt, but crazy as as Marsha as Marsha Blackburn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I, I hope that she runs. I hope that uh, she's able to help galvanize and mobilize a, a base of voters who's enthusiastic and and ready to turn out uh, for this election. But whoever becomes our nominee in, in this race, uh, we're going to make sure that uh, we we have a strong party apparatus in all 95 counties to be able to help them move the needle and hopefully win this race. Yeah, we came very close in the last cycle to getting rid of, I want to say, an even worse senator. And that's Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, um, the bag man for the, uh, you know, for the insurrection. Um, But we didn't. And it was heartbreaking. So I'm hoping that Tennessee, um, you know, they did a great job in Wisconsin, but there was so much dark money pouring in on the other side, made it very tough. Very, very tough. And Mandela Barnes was a good candidate. So, um, uh, but I'm hopeful that you guys have, uh, are in a better place. And- yes, I, I, I hope so. And I, and I, and just, just from the amount of enthusiasm and, uh, and that, that reigniting of that fighting spirit, uh, for democracy, I, I think we're seeing that play out in, in, in elections, local elections, even now today, um, uh, in the state. So I, I'm, a, I'm hopeful. Um, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned the difficulty that rural hospitals are having. And I made a note in my head to come back to hospitals because uh, not a rural hospital, but a very big, very um, prominent major medical center. Um, the state bullied them into turning over health records of patients because of this transphobic nonsense. This is really, I think, aren't people exhausted by that kind of behavior? Don't they just want to say, leave us alone? Our health records are our health records. That cannot yeah. be good politics. Not not just exhausted, uh, but I think people are realizing that a lot of these policies in, in our state courts, even conservative, uh, conservative state judges, have struck down many of these many of these uh, many of these laws. You know, we have a saying here in Tennessee that that the Republican supermajority here they aren't passing laws; they're passing lawsuits because every piece of <laughs> legis- every piece of legislation that they pass end up in court, and it, the the courts end up deciding with people. I think what what we see with the medical records issue and uh, and, and the second and the attorney general's office um, is just another. Uh, 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 another example of a government overreaching, uh, a Republican-controlled state government overreaching into the lives of ordinary people in a very unconstitutional way that violates yeah. uh, that violates a, a, an average citizen's privacy. I think autocratic overreach is theme of the uh, of this cycle, and Americans are seeing it everywhere in every state yeah. where Republicans are taking the power yeah. they have by virtue of 
of, you know, this gerrymander. And I, you know, I, I think Democrats would have gerrymandered too. Don't get me wrong. But Republicans, that, that, that huge win they had, um, uh, during that midterm when President Obama was president, uh, gave them power at the same moment computers and data mining perfected the art of the gerrymander. And that um, has led to this really terrible outcomes for people, not just political outcomes, but outcomes in their lives across states because they've gerrymandered into districts where anger more than actually getting something done is what's keeping them going. Yeah. No, I, I, I can agree. I can agree. And that's why right now in Tennessee, we're, we're, we're fighting gerrymandering and, and illegal maps in our courts right now on the state yep. level and, and law, with lawsuits that were just filed uh, on the federal level. And you're going to, I think the governor said he was going to call a special session in order um, to finally do something about uh, common sense guns. It's, this was in response to the very same thing that led to the Tennessee three fiasco for the Republicans. Um, but I don't think that's what's really happening, is it? No. Uh, so he promised to call a special. He got all this this national accolades for wanting to stand up and do what was right. Uh, and he finally issued a proclamation uh, last week uh, calling for a special session that's going to start on August the 21st. And it's supposed to be about gun safety, uh, but it's probably the most watered down gun safety uh, special session that will ever happen in the country anywhere. It doesn't really address uh, gun violence or uh, or gun reforms in a in any meaningful way. It's more geared towards locking more juvenile, uh, strengthening uh, strengthening uh, criminal uh, penalties to to arrest more juveniles and and imprison them longer. It's more geared towards uh, some mental health uh, issues, but it is definitely uh, not anything meaningful when it comes to moving the needle to keep people safe across our state uh, from gun violence. Yeah, I mean, I talked to lots of people in Nashville, you know, in the week following that terrible school shooting. And I just don't think they're going to put up with it. I don't think they're fooled for one second. I think people just want to be able to get about their lives and do the, you know, be send their kids to school and, and think that they can go to a movie and um, or, or go to church and just be safe. I don't think I, I think there are big majorities and look at polling that favor, you know, not taking away everybody's gun, but simple common sense laws. Yeah, take take yeah, red flag laws for take yeah, red ahead. flag laws for instance. Uh, overwhelming support across the state for red flag laws, or or some or some legislation similar to red flag laws. Um, we don't see any of that rolled out in the special session. Republicans were avid uh, avid opponents of it uh, as the regular session ended. I guess that held through the summer, and now the the special session doesn't have even a mention of it uh, uh, in it. You got to I mean, I could be completely misreading this because I'm not close enough to see. But from a distance, it feels like your governor, you know, in his relation to his legislature is a little bit like Kevin McCarthy and his body that, you know what, whatever he thinks he's going to do, this radical MAGA core is calling the shots. 
Yeah, but we well, that's definitely happening here in the state. The the, the Republican supermajority, the Speaker of the House, calls the shots. He sets the Republican agenda for the state. We've seen one of the most feckless, probably one of the most feckless Republican governors in the in the country here in uh, here in Tennessee. He has had no. He's been very spineless. He had no backbone to stand up uh, to some of the radical extremist issues uh, that uh, that Republicans and his own party has been able to uh, to plow ahead with. He has not been a true leader for his party. The, it has been controlled by the Speaker of the House and, and a very radical Republican uh, legislature. One of the one of the analogies I, I use across the state is, you know, the last Republican governor we had, if you're going to ride a lion, uh, it's either you're going to hold on to the mane and, and not get thrown around. But this governor is holding on to the tail. And every time uh, every time this tail swings around, that, that lion's waiting to take a bite. And eventually he's going to grab him. And I think we've seen some of that in this special with him wanting to call the special session and the clashing of an infighting from the Republican Party here in the state on somebody who wants to do what's right. Uh, and he had he had good family friends, close family friends who were killed in the in the Covenant school shooting in the state. So somebody yeah. who wants to genuinely do do what's right, I, I hope, uh, met with a the partisan political backlash from his own party and has caved uh, and has caved to the the political uh, the political infighting of the Republican Party. And it's it's going to leave more people uh, in a precarious situation, more communities unsafe, and more people wondering what's next. And I think it also tells a different story, not a more dangerous one, because that one's dangerous enough, but a different one about leadership. And I think people have a right to expect in a governor, somebody who has the backbone to do the things he believes in and to carry through the things he says he's going to do. And if you're too weak to do it, maybe that's just, you know what, not the job for you. Yep, definitely not our governor. (laughs) (laughs) And here's what I don't understand again. Tennessee, you know, I'm 65 years old. I'm an old man. Tennessee was never, forgive me, Mississippi or Alabama. Tennessee was a proud state that did remarkable things in, in, in all kinds of ways and wasn't, you know, falling for the craziest stuff the country had on offer. Um, have I misread it over time or was it, or was it always going to be crazy like this? Well, well, let me, let me remind you what I said in the beginning. <laughs> uh, from reconstruction until 2010, Repu- uh, Democrats controlled the state legislature in Tennessee. There was no Republican control. Every eight years, the governor's mansion went Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. And then all of a sudden, Republicans gained the supermajority, and this ten or ten or ten or twelve years that they've had control has felt like a lifetime of hell here in the state, uh, because they have gone to the fringes when it when it has come to passing legislation that it has really been more political than it has been about helping move the needle in people's lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I worry like you have a, a a sort of one of those national economic engines in the city of Nashville, which has grown and it's become, you know, like one of those, it's a, it's a proud Tennessee city, but it's one of those national cities that young people want to move to that, you know, have lots of opportunity. And, and I, I can imagine as this legislature keeps doing what it's doing, that's got to be terribly dangerous for the economic well-being of that engine. 
not only terrible, terribly dangerous, but a, a big part of our story that goes that, that goes you know kind of unreported a lot is the preemptive nature of this state legislature. They try to preempt anything that cities like Nashville or Memphis want to do because you know they're controlled mostly by by a democratic uh, democratic local leaders. Uh, but in Nashville, particularly, uh, this uh, this this act of retribution um, that we saw play out. This vindictiveness that we saw play out with the explosion of the Tennessee Three is just an example of what this state uh, the Republican supermajority has been willing to do. Uh, when Nashville refused to have the Republican uh, National Co- Convention there, uh, they've set their sight they they set their sights on. Uh, lowering the number of people on the Nashville City Council, uh, to seizing control of the Nashville Sports Authority, to seizing control of the Nashville uh, Convention Center, to seizing control of the majority of the people who sit on the Nashville Airport Board. I mean, they've been out to to make Nashville a state entity uh, over its own own locality, and state courts have uh, have uh, over and over again. Uh, struck down this, these pieces of legislation that they've tried to put into place uh, to seek revenge on, on a, a major metro city in the state, but a very impactful city to, the, to our national economy. Yep, yep. I, I, we haven't talked too much about that. Um, and I know uh, uh, the state's um, relationship with Memphis is particularly awful. Yeah, it is. It is horrible. And Memphis is the largest. Memphis has the largest minority population in the entire state. Um, I know that a lot has been said uh, about race as it relates to to this state legislature and how they interact with citizens across the state. But if you just look at the way Memphis has been neglected by the state, has been attacked by the state, uh, I, I think that'd be a an easy case for anybody on the outside looking in to make. There's no major investment, and and there's all this preemptive action uh, that has led uh, to to let's funding for some of the most critical pieces uh, of uh, policies that we need to see enacted in the and the across the state. The governor uh, decided to not accept uh, federal funding for HIV and AIDS uh, prevention. Um, impacts a city like Memphis that has one of the highest HIV age rates in the state. Uh, it's impacting black and brown communities at a much higher rate. Um, so, you know, I, I think to everyone's got to be willing to look at this situation and, and judge it for what it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's um, DeSantis-like cruelty, what they've done to yeah. Memphis, you know. And, um, um, but, I, you know, I talked to a, a, a couple months ago, a journalist came on this show, local Memphis journalist. And I was so impressed by just up against all odds the community work that people are doing to try with very little resources to tackle these huge problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and thankfully there are strong uh, philanthropists who are willing to give to organizations to help keep them afloat, to help uh, fill some of the gap that the state has left the city in with, with underfunding so many, so many things in, in Memphis from education to healthcare, uh, to, to repaving roads and bridges, uh, and, and just making sure that people can live a, a much more prosperous life. I mean, 
there has been total and complete neglect of the city of Memphis from this uh, re- Republican supermajority. And again, Memphis is the has the largest minority population in the entire state. Yeah, yeah, it's cruel. It's absolutely cruel. Um, uh, it's something else. It's also just uh, bigoted, old school, awful. Um, all right, let's talk about something happier. Um, we're having a party here in Chicago for Democrats. Um, you going to be up here for the convention? Absolutely. I'll actually be up there in a few weeks to, to get a preview of what we can expect for the convention. So I'm excited about about coming to Chicago in, 20, uh, in 2024 and, and everything that your city has to offer. So I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> we, we, we're looking forward to hosting that party. Um, uh, and, and, you know, my city, like cities around the country, has uh, had its challenges, but such good stuff is going on. Um, it's a fun place. I think the delegates will have a have a wonderful experience and come out energized for uh, energized and united for uh, this battle that we're in. I, you, you said it early on about going on offense. I think that um, I think back to when Donald Trump first won and um, where the country was. I think we've gone from defense to offense around the country and made huge progress. I mean, when I think about um, uh, the organizations that didn't exist, you know, the uh, run for something, the indivisible, the swing lefts that participate in state after state, sort of party adjacent organizations, or you and what you've done just to build a democratic party of a new kind that's, you know, attractive to people in, in Tennessee. And that's happening around the country. I think we've moved from defense to offense. And I think when we come out of that convention, we're going to move from offense to victory and put an end to this stuff. I truly hope so. <laughs> Especially um, here in Tennessee. One last question uh, that, that two scholars, it was in the New York Times uh, yesterday or day before, one of them's at the University of Chicago here. This was a scholar who was a Law clerk for Chief Justice Roberts, a a right leaning law uh, law scholar, and and he said, "Look, Donald Trump can't be on the ballot. The Fourteenth Amendment of the Constitution forbids it unless two thirds members of uh, Congress uh, support it." I am pushing hard for Illinois to uh, not have him on the ballot. I mean, maybe he'll sue and they'll go to the Supreme Court and they'll tell us that these scholars are wrong. But a lot of people read the 14th Amendment, particularly the third section of it, say, look, if you have raised your hand, sworn an oath to the United States and participated or encouraged an insurrection, which he did, you don't have to be convicted in a court of law. They didn't convict anybody after the Civil War of it. They just said, you know, you can't serve. So uh, any chance... Uh, the folks in Tennessee are going to read this and say, you know what, you can't be on the ballot. Uh, I'm not. I'm not certain if, if they'll support that particular uh, that yeah. particular approach. But um, but what I do know is that what we saw from the Republican uh, majority and the Republican state party this year 
um, uh, with some maneuvering on how to certify candidates to be able to actually run for uh, for president in our state. Uh, we saw a state law get changed so that the Republican state party could, uh, or the Democratic party, uh, could unilaterally not certify presidential candidates in the state. Uh, and uh, and we a lot of the a lot of the uh, establishment Republicans in Tennessee. You know, we got the Marsha Blackburns and the Bill Haggertys who have lined up behind. Donald Trump, but they had run DeSantis here for their um, for their state for their statewide dinner. Uh, so I think there may be a move internally on their side to kind of restrict who shows up on the ballot in the Republican yeah. primary here next year. Well, we have a heavy lift on our side, but I wouldn't trade places with the other guys who are uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uniformly Americans are against and are have their own kind of chaos. Anyway, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. I really uh, uh, am in awe of the work you've done and uh, and glad you had a chance to chat with the upper Midwest today. Thank you so much for having me. And, and I hope I've been able to, to be a, 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 a prominent voice for Tennessee and Chicago and, and for all of your listeners across the nation. You bet. Thank you so much. Enjoy right, the rest of your bye. weekend. All right, everybody, we're taking a break from the news. Uh, and, um, wow, wasn't that great? Hendro Remus, chair of the Tennessee Dems, fabulous. Uh, but when we come back, we have more fabulous, so do not go away. I want you to remember this company, Phoenix American Hospitality. Visit PAHinvest.com. Their team buys world-class hotel brands like Marriott, Hilton, and Hyatt, then maximizes the profits of each operation. While the rest of America deals with the yo-yo stock market, Phoenix American Hospitality has paid their REIT investors more than 12% in annualized profits. Capitalize on the travel boom and diversify your portfolio. Visit PAHinvest.com. Past performance does not indicate future results. 